Welcome to the feature series, How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, which celebrates the most successful entrant at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the 50th anniversary of his first event in 1969. Presented by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets, a long-standing partner of Team Penske, this 15-part series spans some of the greatest drivers, managers, mechanics, engineers, and the man himself, Roger Penske, to document the captain's vast influence on America's defining motor race, the Indy 500, and in many instances, the sport as a whole. We'll also be joined by a reporter who covered Penske's Indy debut a half century ago and some of his fiercest rivals, many of whom admit to being fans of the 82-year-old icon. Our guest in this episode of How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 is author Jade Gerse, whose fantastic book, The Beast, chronicles the unbelievable efforts expended by Roger Penske and Elmore Engineering, along with the precarious nature of the project, which could have failed on multiple occasions to produce an unbeatable stock block engine for the 1994 Indy 500, which Alan Sir Jr. would go on to win for Team Penske. Jade Gerse, you wrote yourself a pretty awesome book, which makes sense because you're pretty awesome at writing books. Uh, your fantastic piece of work, both investigative, storytelling, celebrational, all manner of awesomeness surrounding what many of us saw and maybe many who, if they weren't there or weren't fans, weren't even alive, have since learned about 1994 Indianapolis 500 and something, a motor actually called the beast. So while we are celebrating Roger, Team Penske and their 50th anniversary at the Speedway, I figured you would be the perfect person to take us deep inside the idea, the formation, the execution, and, and the final outcome, absolute clobbering of the field in 1994, which you spent untold days, hours, months, years researching for your book. Let's start with where this piqued your interest as a piece of literature to create. Well, with an intro like that, I'd better be pretty darn good. So thank you, Marshall. Um, I actually attended the 94 race simply as a fan. Uh, so I saw it and heard it in person, but I didn't know the, the, the real story. And uh, through a course of, of action, uh, I actually was hired several years later by Ilmore Engineering, which was the engineering company, uh, the race engine design and build company that, that created and designed uh, the beast. And we would go to team dinners and guys would have a drink or two and suddenly these unbelievable stories would just start flowing from them uh, about what it took to build that engine and what it took to keep it secret from everyone else. And I just, uh, I thought, thought this is amazing. Some, someone has to tell this story. Uh, and so the, the sort of the idea, the kernel of the idea was placed, uh, uh, 96, 97, um, and then uh, Paul Morgan, who is the Moore of Ilmore, um, sadly Paul passed in 2001. Uh, he collected and greatly flew World War II uh, vintage war World War II planes, and sadly, upon landing uh, on one in 2001, he had a crash and and was killed. And I I I, I mean I was heartbroken because I loved Paul. But I was also heartbroken because I felt like he might have been the key cog in the whole story. And I kind of felt like a lot of that story died when Paul passed away. But jump forward a decade or more later, and I, I had become friends with Paul's son, Patrick Morgan, who's also a very fine engineer. And he and I were just kind of BSing, and he made a comment about, boy, I would I would sure love to know – what my dad did on that, you know, on that project for that engine in 94. And it was almost like just, you know, a push over the cliff or if you're on a roller coaster, it was pushing me over the top. And it, it just struck me that I, I, I had to do this story. I had to tell it right and get the word out. And I, I was very lucky because I had worked for Ilmore 
Uh, a lot of the people that I interviewed knew me and were comfortable with me. So I think in a sense, I got a lot more insight from them because I think they trusted me enough to open up and, you know, and tell things uh, in a great manner. So uh, that's the long story of how I was inspired to start it and how it came together. Looking at how this has become the defining how Penske changed the Indy 500 topic and subject, and, and it's one of many, don't get me wrong, there's so many aspects in those that we have spoken with for this series, but when most people think of Roger Penske and some sort of wild, crazy thing that he did to push performance and expectation at the Indy 500 beyond any previously accepted measure, <laughs> the beast is it. Why don't we start, Jade, and, and I'll have you fill in some of the background on where USAC's rules had changed and opened up some doors for consideration. Why don't you start us where the what had become almost bespoke 2.65 liter single turbo V8. There were some Buick V6s in there understood, but by and large, there was one displacement, one style of motor that had just become standard practice across a variety of engine builders at the 500. Why don't you start us off with the point in time where there's a rule change and some options to play outside that box emerge, yet nobody decided to take that up at least immediately. Yeah, the the Speedway had always had uh, its own set of rules, um, which were fairly similar to what the uh, the rules in cart or champ car or whatever you want to call it. Uh, they were very similar, but the Speedway had always wanted to keep the legend alive of the Speedway of, of being open to the little guy, being open to a variety of innovation or a variety of power plants. And that had kind of uh, become moot in a way because it was primarily the the very powerful and, and similar Ford Cosworth or the Ilmore then uh, Ilmore Chevrolet um, the Buicks were were kind of the odd man out in that they were very fast over a lap or two but they were very brittle uh, up until the 93 race, only one Buick had even completed the full 500 miles. So that was the, the sort of the scenario, but with some urging from, from arguably general motors, the speedway had altered that rule to remove the words stock block from, from the, the rule that would allow a Buick, let's say, uh, to run higher boost, produce more horsepower from a smaller package. And that was the change that perked up the eyes and ears of Roger Penske, as well as Paul Morgan and, and Mario Illion of Ilmore. Um, and they had a dinner after the 93 Indy 500, which Penske had won. And realize, you know, and all of them knew that this small change to the rule meant that it would now allow a company such as Ilmore with Penske's backing to build an engine to this rule package that was not limited to being a stock block or an engine that you had pulled a block just off the assembly line, which might be great for a, a passenger car, but really was just not simply not built to withstand the, just the sheer power and the, and the, uh, uh, power needed to run competitively at the Indy 500. So it's this very subtle change that opened the door. And so Roger, uh, along with uh, Morgan and Ilian, had a, a famous dinner in the desert in, in Arizona where they decided we, we must do this before uh, our other competitors at Ford or Buick um, were able to do it. The other twist was that Honda was returning to or was coming to Indy and Ilmore had raced against them in Formula One and Honda basically did whatever it took. They spent whatever it, 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 it needed to have a dominating engine and Ilmore was, uh, they were terrified that Honda would come aboard with uh, unlimited funds and build an engine to this new subtle rule change. So it was part paranoia, part, uh, mm. Uh, competitive edge, but they decide they had to do it. 
They had to do it quickly. They also had to do it in a top secret manner to not allow their competitors time to respond or to, to build their own version, the Ford Cosworth version or the Honda version of this, this non-stock block engine. So that was the, the real genesis. They all decided this was what it was going to take for the 94 Indy and beyond with this new, uh, again, it was a very subtle rule change by the Speedway. In a classic Roger Penske move, if we fast forward to the conclusion of this story, Jade, we are talking about the Penske chassis and the Mercedes-Benz engine winning the Indy 500. <laughs> yes. This was not, as you just shared, although Mercedes-Benz branding was indeed on the valve covers and in print and, and television ads and whatnot, in this meeting in the desert and the decision to go forward in the classic <clears throat> Roger Penske move, uh, this was not going to be cheap. This was going to be, if anything, one of the crazier modern undertakings, not only technologically, but financially as well. And there was no sponsor behind it then. And yet the captain said, let's do it. Share some insights about that before we start to move into the, the design resources and what, you know, how folks came up with this 209 cubic inch monster. Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. I mentioned earlier about how open and, and trusting everyone was, but I never, I never got anyone on the record that would share with me the budget. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but uh, I never really got a handle on the full budget. My best educated guess is it, it had to be somewhere in the 10 million range. Uh, which, uh, you know, at, with 10 million, you could run a whole team, a whole season at that point, uh, and, and run it very well. But it, it's, it's interesting to me that no one ever, uh, uh, admitted to what that number was, but you also had Penske who was committed to winning. It was the winning on the racetrack that was the halo for his entire brand, all of his auto dealerships, his truck leasing companies, uh, Detroit Diesel. And uh, so to him, winning the success on the track uh, really brought a halo to all of his businesses. So, so to him, it was a, a business decision that, that applied or that uh, g gave benefit to all of his other businesses. And you're correct. Mercedes came aboard very, very late, and uh, Roger was attempting to develop a, a relationship with Mercedes, both for Formula One and an IndyCar. So um, the rumors are that that Mercedes didn't pay a cent to come aboard and put their name on this engine. That it was mere uh, chance to prove to them what capabilities Penske and, and Ilmore had, and it it proved to be. Uh, uh, fortuitous for all of them business-wise. Mercedes won Formula One championships with Ilmore and uh, really came aboard in, in cart and, and did very well there too. So um, it was really smart business on Roger Penske's behalf, even though it was uh, hugely expensive and risky. He thought it was worth the risk. Since 1954, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has served as the proving grounds for the world's most legendary helmet brand. From Jimmy Bryan to Mario Andretti and Elio Castroneves, Bell Helmets has and continues to protect some of the all-time greats. Follow the journey on social media at Bell Racing HQ or by visiting bellracing.com. So this moves into what I think might be one of folks' one or two or three favorite aspects of this program, this stock block push rod V eight one off, call it built just for indie uh, creation. And it's the clandestine aspect. <laughs> so there, there's a famous Roger Penske line about, and, and maybe you can share that with us about telling the team about keeping this secret and, and how, you know, it, it would be like forfeiting money and whatnot, but Share with us how we go from this meeting in the desert to, okay, we need to come up with a design. Now, keep in mind another thing, too. So we're talking about after the 93 Indy 500, 
Ilmore also needs to build a regular 2.65 liter V8 for the 1994 season. So it's not just a case of this will be our single motor that gets used throughout 1994. This was also a project where we have the standard motor that would be used throughout the Kart IndyCar Championship. Plus, there's this giant one-off motor that is being prepared for the 500. Tell us some stories about how this gets moving and how it's kept under wraps and who's doing what uh, conceptually to at least lay down the initial lines of what it might be. Yeah, and don't forget they were also doing Formula One engines at that time as well as designing a new Formula One engine. So it's... uh no, the the and Ilmore it was at that time still is actually a very small company relative to what people might think uh, of some massive uh, you know industrial <laughs> company. Uh, they're very small, and uh, so it was decided early on that the only way this could happen was to use the absolute fewest people and to keep it a secret within that small group, even people that during the day would work side by side with these folks had no idea that when the place closed for business on a normal business day, those involved would essentially stay and work even overnight on this new, uh, uh, you know, this new massive engine. So, um, uh, there were a lot of people uh, in England or actually not a lot. There were a few people in England that didn't get a lot of sleep for, uh, for the next uh, nine months or so to, to put this together. And uh, another element, uh, a, quote, typical race engine would take uh, roughly 18 months to go from the first pencil on paper to the first race. These guys only had, uh, you know, 11 months to get this, uh, this new project together and to get it ready for, uh, for the 500. So it was sort of this hu- superhuman compressed timeline with a limited number of people. Uh, Mario Illion is uh, still considered one of the finest engine designers uh, in the world. And he really put together the outer parameters of the engine and then let his team take off and they they would do things like the crankshaft for example the process to make a crankshaft was 23 weeks that was the longest time frame to uh create a part so it became the very first item that had to be designed and then sent to start being constructed almost half a year yeah (laughs) and if you (laughs) find something you don't like and or Maybe there was, I don't want to call it a design flaw, but ooh, maybe you got the radius wrong here. And in dyno testing, something broke. Yeah. So you wait almost half a year, 40% of a year, and you, yeah. you sure hope it's perfect because if it isn't, you know, you're sitting here staring at, I don't yes. know, Christmas, Labor Day, who knows yes. when you're going to get the next. <laughs> and that was the pressure. And they knew that. They knew that if this crankshaft failed, the, the project was done. It, it was off. They, they were not, uh, uh, you know, they were aware of that and they, they recognized that. So the solution, which turned out to be an intense design solution for Mario Illion, was he promised he would design the beast to fit exactly into the Penske chassis just as the other, quote, regular uh, V8 engine would. So the 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 theory being if the if the pushrod engine failed then they just simply put the quote regular engine <laughs> back into the chassis and off they go uh, so it was it really Mario Ilian uh, uh, admitted it it was insane to try to put uh, thirty eight pounds of uh, of feed into a thirty pound bag it had to fit exactly into the chassis as the the other engine did so you have all of these design challenges and elements before you've even drawn a line on paper or or began to produce parts so uh, uh flying by the seat of their pants is definitely uh, a part of the story and the fact that they trusted each other immensely everyone had their project and uh, nobody uh needed uh, approvals or go through any sort of process to slow it down they just just did it uh they had a phrase called jfdi which meant j just effing effing do it (laughs) 
And so, uh, so it really, uh, that, that attitude permeated the whole thing. They, they realized a, a, a failure, even a minor failure could essentially knock the whole thing out. And that's another reason to keep it a secret. Why, why herald and announce this great new project when it very well could uh, completely uh, collapse and, and uh, not, not be able to run at the Indy 500. So that was the background upon the beginning of the design and, and construction. So in addition to motor, <clears throat> dual motors being created by Ilmore, we have this glorious Penske PC-23 chassis being crafted in the background that would, I would say, was might not have been as highly promoted in terms of success of what the Beast did at Indianapolis. But if you look at that 1994 season, boy, that chassis as well was sublime. So it was a great point, Jade, that in what they were doing with the Beast, a motor going from the 161 cubic inch 2.65 liter V8 turbo to the 209 cubic inch. I mean, these are two motors with different sizes, different footprints, different everything, and actually designing a car that could accept or designing the engines that could be accepted uh, in the same chassis as well. Yes, this was this was more than just carving up lumps of metal and throwing some cylinders into the <laughs> bores and going off to play motor racing. So let's let's talk about initial concepts for this stock block crazy high boost good lord type motor what were some of the power projections torque projections just something some of the guidelines they were hoping to exploit because ultimately that's the reason they did this right it wasn't just oh here's a loophole we could play with it's if we can get this to work and live in theory we should beat the living heck out of the 2.65 liter V8 turbos. Yeah, absolutely. The the current at that time the current what I call quote the standard or normal engine was producing about 750 760 horsepower. Uh, at the the dinner in the desert where they decided to to do this project, Mario uh, Ilian promised Roger that this would produce at least 900 horsepower. That was his sort of uh, back of the envelope sketching out or a, a rough estimate. Uh, so that was the goal: was to go in with this uh, huge amount of advantage in in hand. Um, and so that was sort of what they were, were hoping for. Um, in the development of it, I, I will say that when it first ran on the dyno, um, which was designed to, to check the, the horsepower, the torque, and all of that, it, it was greatly disappointing. It was just above 800 horsepower. So they were terrified that they would have gone to all this effort and uh, – you know, produce something at great expense that really did not give them much of an advantage at all. And they struggled with this for, for quite a while. And uh, one of the, the, the big brains in, at Ilmore, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Williams, who had been a, a university mathematics professor, uh, came up with this uh, crazy mathematics that, that sort of went against current knowledge or it, it went against what Mario Ilian believed to be the laws of physics and the laws of, of building an engine. And uh, despite Mario's uh, protestations, they went ahead and built uh, a new version with these specs and figures. And all of a sudden, they put it on the dyno and it, it exceeded 1,000 horsepower, which just thrilled them to no end and they decided at that very moment that they would do nothing more to try to improve or increase that horsepower that now every moment was devoted to making sure that this engine would last 500 miles and believe me that was a huge challenge it proved to be very elusive until very late in the game. But uh, you had uh, very disappointed guys uh, at the start, and then once this uh, change was implemented, uh, suddenly they knew they had this monster uh, that, according to their uh, figures, was producing 1,024 
horsepower. That was the maximum that they had measured. So uh, it truly was uh, a huge advantage as far as, as power. And this only adds, Jade, to the, the depth of the achievement. So externally, if folks were unfortunately not able to read your book, The Beast, there might be an impression that found a loophole, threw money at it, First thing off the uh, off off the floor was brilliant. Made a zillion horsepower, went and conquered the world. Not the case at all. There were no. so many points where a bad decision here, wrong decision there, could have tanked the entire project. And even in this instance, and maybe you can share some thoughts on where this uh, Mr. Williams' thoughts and this this comprehensive redesign came in on the timeline trying to get ready for the 94 race because that in and of itself is a holy cow you had to kind of sort of go back to the drawing board i thought it was just brilliant from day one <laughs> there there's a great conversation that that jeff williams shared with me where they had come to him and they said we we need this to be looked at and he said very well that that will take about six months and they said no you have three weeks and it's this great uh, uh, contentious debate that, uh, that Jeff, being the very deliberate professorial uh, kind of chap, uh, he wanted to uh, really delve into it, and, and he simply didn't have the time. Uh, they simply didn't give him the time. But there were uh, – part of the book is about how they would test things. They would break things. They would go back and work overnight to try to – solve the weakest link and to jump ahead in that progress they announced the engine in in mid-april of that year and began practice early in may without that engine any of those engines having turned 500 miles of running so they were absolutely going into the great unknown when practice began the 500 now, what they were also doing, while they were practicing for the 500, they would have the test team at Michigan running tests concurrently. And finally, the engine did pass the 500-mile mark uh, the week of the, the first week of practice uh, for the Indy 500. So, again, I, I attended as a fan, and to my eyes and many others, it looked effortless. They sure. were dominating. but great joy of the book for me was to, to really tell the story that this this was anything but <laughs> but easy and it was anything but a a, a, a completed deal uh to to get it to the to the finish so that that to me was fun um there were also so many legends and myths because the engine appeared out of nowhere and then disappeared uh, so a lot of those myths I was able to either disprove or to put put some facts behind them um, and uh, really show uh, what a Herculean task it was. So another aspect of this, which can just contextually is is well worth pointing out, be one thing if they said, we are going to do an engine. And so we're going to have the primary engine. We'll have a couple of backups, but really we're just putting – all of this effort into uh, really going for the overall win with one entry. No, we're talking three entries. We're talking Alan Sir Jr., Paul Tracy, Emerson Fittipaldi. So if we're also thinking back to a time where spare chassis were not only allowed, but were allowed to be fully built up with motors in them ready to go. So you could, in theory, be testing one chassis one moment at the 500 or Michigan or elsewhere or practicing in and then jump in the other one. We're talking about a rather large production effort here as well, Jade, to outfit three cars to go test, to have them practicing as well. You share any insights on what that was like, because you mentioned the word Herculean. Yeah, this wasn't a one giant bullet. This wasn't a single <laughs> shot gun with a giant bullet in it. This was multiple bullets, and you're having to feed the backup gun and test here and test there. This sounds like a an organizational uh, nightmare, but also something that we need to honor as well. 
Yeah. In fact, I've had people say, well, this is a business book. This is about logistics and this is about, uh, uh, you know, how you do business right at, at high speed, but with top quality. Uh, you've got to do it right the first time or, or it's not, not going to work. Um, you also had uh, Ilmore was designing and, and putting the parts together, building the parts in Bricksworth, England. Penske shop at that time was in Reading, Pennsylvania. Then you had uh, the the all the cars suddenly testing in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and, and Michigan. Which, by the way, at that time, Roger Penske owned both of those speedways, which was very convenient. Um, and so it was it was massive. It, it's mind blowing what was going on and how many moving pieces there were. Um, to do that. And some of the testing stories, the first test was done at Nazareth uh, after a huge heavy snow. <laughs> they had to have the city come in and clear the track. Crew had to stand on top of snowbanks to watch the car. Uh, Alan Sir Jr. and Paul Tracy wore um, snowmobile suits, these insulated snowmobile shoes, shoot, suits, uh, just to begin the testing so it wasn't a, a walk in the park it wasn't a sunny summer testing session uh it was done through the winter and all climate conditions uh th there was nothing easy about any of the elements uh, of this and all with one goal in mind and that is to build this engine to last 500 miles to get to the finish line of the indy 500 so let's share some insights jade from those initial tests so the drivers that we have mentioned they have all experienced very powerful engines uh some with formula one experience or even you know whether it's mo as a formula one world champion but both little al and paul i believe in or around this point had tested in formula one so these are all men who are accustomed to having their head just pinned into the headrest under acceleration and whatnot <laughs> What were some of the, the types of feedback that were coming from the drivers and what were some of the Ilmore team engineers uh, giving you in terms of what they were learning about this crazy motor? Well, uh, I, Al Unser Jr. was the first to test it, and it was clear from day one that this was this was really an amazing engine. Even on the one mile oval at Nazareth, the the goal was just to get laps to to find the weak points. Uh, and Al was thrilled from day one. Uh, but the real workhorse, I, I don't think he gets enough credit, is Paul Tracy. Paul was kind of the the young young gun, as you'd say, uh, and actually did the majority of, of the testing of this. And Paul, you know, everyone kind of knows Paul. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, his attitude is, I'm going to get in and I'm going to drive this, uh, you know, as fast as I can and, and go for it. And they went through just an unbelievable amount of failures. Uh, it was almost like a checklist. All right, this is our weakest link. We're going to rebuild it. We're going to redesign it and then we're going to move on and and it just kept going and going and uh as i had said earlier it, it, it kept failing it had never done 500 miles by the time the, the the practice began for the 500 and and it just was uh this task of of finding the weak spots and uh and making sure that they solve those they also had huge pr trouble with the electronics of it uh, the, the whole engine control unit and all of that, uh, was a huge problem, uh, that didn't get solved until early May. So there, there were, you know, however many parts on that engine that there were probably an equal amount of, of failures or troubles that, that they simply had to keep, uh, keep solving, uh, day by day. One of the the fascinating things for for me is Bricksworth is uh, not not very close to Heathrow Airport. So what they would do is in Ilmore would design and build a new part overnight in Bricksworth, England. In the morning, they would load Paul Morgan's P fifty one Mustang uh, World War II plane. They would load the wings, which used to hold all the bullets for the guns, with these parts, and Paul would fly it 
to Heathrow Airport, drop it at the uh, <laughs> drop it at the freight, and they would be put on the the Concorde. The, the supersonic Concorde was still flying. They would fly on the Concorde and arrive in New York City at nine a.m. New York time. The Penske people pick it up, go and literally put it in the car that morning. So th- th- this is literally how they their parts truck was a World War II plane, a Concorde, <laughs> and Penske's drivers to drive it back to the shop. So that was uh, the level of logistics that this was operating upon day after day. As we start to round towards the finish line here, Jade, of the other aspects that I think folks have come to love, and maybe you can share some anecdotes of this as well. So you mentioned on the dyno seeing a peak of 1,024 horsepower, four-digit horsepower, sustainable horsepower as well. Well, that speed, at speed, that power is going to be recognized in mile per hour. That also, granted, that kind of power, Jade, might not manifest in four-digit mile per hour, but it sure kind of sort of seemed like it, like we were doing some warp speed Uh, type performance can you share some of the feedback from the drivers and some of the numbers that were quoted at indianapolis motor speedway in practice in qualifying etc with what the beast was able to do in terms of straight line speed yeah and again roger was terrified of playing all their cards they didn't want to show the full potential of the engine so they would never allow the drivers to run a full lap flat out. It, it was literally, they would do two or three corners and then they would lift off. And in those days, the, the timing and scoring at Indy was not as advanced as it was to, as it is today. Today, you would see a segment time and realize they've clearly let off, you know, they've not gone full blast through whatever corner or straightaway. And that, that was a lot of stress for the drivers they they wanted to test it they didn't know what they had when if they were to go a full lap but they with penske's setup and data they estimated that the top speed on the back straight was 252 miles per hour (laughs) which the 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 best quote from that was emerson fittipaldi said do not tell me what that is in kilometers i don't i don't want to know what that translates to in kilometers it was just an immense amount of speed but uh that was just uh one of the the fun things that that they were mathematically working on on the backstretch and emerson he didn't didn't want to really know how fast he was going going into to turn three there so they had a lot uh of that they also discovered that uh, Paul Tracy had come in from a run and the tire engineers looked at the back tires and the they use uh, markings to line up the tire with the wheel and those markings had had moved the tires had moved on the wheel it was so much power and uh, they said look at this it's moved two inches and Rick Mears said no it's two inches the wrong way it has gone around the entire wheel. And Rick said, and we don't know if that's just one rotation or, or many. So they ended up finding a local shop. They had to sandblast every one of the wheels uh, at the bead to get a, uh, 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 get it to connect where the, the the tires wouldn't spin around on the wheels at speed, which is just uh, the best example of how much torque this thing had. It just exceeded the capabilities of, of the tires. So come race day, they again were not only worried about the engine, but would the, the Goodyear tires, would they last? Would they be reliable? So it was just another sort of element of the problems that a thousand horsepower would cause you uh, at the speedway so there were there was no shortage of uh, of amazing uh, things they had to overcome to make sure it would uh, get to the finish line so looking at what was achieved on race day this was we could just simply call it roger penske's indy 500 with 30 other guests invited to watch <laughs> roger penske's yeah. indy 500 all of the work 
all of the money, all of the creativity, all the effort, all the logistics, everything that went into this for, you know, 11 plus months of thought, design and development was achieved. And granted, little Al's win, Al's second Indy 500 victory is fantastic. He did not necessarily dominate the day within the team, but this was something where if you go back and watch the race on YouTube or read about it in uh, one of the annuals and such, this was the absolute epitome of Roger Penske changing the Indy 500. Yeah, and you know, uh, the, later after the the, the race, uh, everybody knows about the split to the IRL versus Champ Car and Cart. Um, all of that really happened, which makes the Beast sort of the last great. Uh, I don't want to say innovation, but the the last great uh unfair advantage at the speedway from then through through now as great as the racing is right now it is still within a very small technical box everyone has the same chassis of you know two engine manufacturers running very similar programs so it, it the sort of the romanticism of beast being the last great innovation at, at Indy or the last great outlier at Indy, uh, I think only enhances sort of the, the allure or the, the mystery of, of the engine. So it really stands out in that way uh, historically as well, uh, I, I think, uh, and will continue to be uh, for many years to come. Let's wrap on a bit of a postscript, Jade. So we have this amazing result, this all-conquering motor that allows team Penske to own the 94 race. Also, we should say completely demoralize every other team and especially every other manufacturer who realize that this level that things have just been taken to such a Penske thing in order for us to compete and win potentially at the world's greatest motor race, our most important race, the ones all of our sponsors pay us money to succeed at in particular, the level of expectation now is possibly out of reach. Uh, can pick a team back then. Could a very young Chip Ganassi racing uh, commission, I believe they were using Let's see, in 94 to have been the Ford Cosworth. Can they, as a team, with Target, commission for Cosworth to build a stock block for them, just them? Could name could a Walker Racing or any of the others go to a specialist engine manufacturer and say, hey, I need a beast for 95? I'm sure that they could have found folks to do it, but none of those teams had the financial resources to take things to that level Tell us, again, a bit of a postscript of how this utter Penske domination of 94 led to a rather rapid one-and-done rulemaking decision based on a lot of pressure from the rest of the paddock. Yeah, and and uh, there, there's a lot of that in the book. It, it, uh, as you said, the other manufacturers, the other teams, there was no question that in this scenario you had to have an engine of this type to, to compete and the expenses would have been astronomical. So the Speedway's first reaction was to lower the level of turbo boost for an engine of this configuration. Uh, mad scientist Mario Illion, uh, once that rule came out, sat down and began uh, uh, running the numbers and still believed they could have an advantage over the, the sort of the quote typical engine and they actually began producing new blocks they also said we never tried to maximize the power of the beast now that we have a full year to to hone and to really maximize it we're, we're still going to be fine we're going to really still have an advantage and i think when word got to the speedway that they were producing blocks and preparing to do it again uh i think there was some panic at usac and the speedway and then they made a, a quick second rule change that really lowered that that turbo boost 
greatly, which then meant it was moot, that this form of engine would not be competitive. So technically it wasn't banned. Uh, it was simply regulated to a point where it would not be worth effort and the expense of building, uh, you know, all new engines for everyone. And in retrospect, in, in Ilmore and Penske were very unhappy with that uh, at the time, but in retrospect realized it's probably best for the sport as a whole that uh, that this sort of arms race was avoided. I think it would have just been astronomical in cost for everyone and, and really not a sustainable business model. So uh, that portrayed or that was was how it became uh, moot for years beyond uh so again it was announced to the world a couple of weeks before may it came in it won the poll it won the race and then suddenly was no longer competitive so it disappeared it was really a one and done both one and won one and done and that again adds to this allure and the myths and the rumors and all of that. Uh, it was you know six weeks in the spotlight and then gone forever. Another interesting postscript to this as well: the concept, the idea of the Indy Racing League that debuted in nineteen ninety six, two years after this victory, it had already been in motion. This is something where talks meetings, you name it. This was something that had already been hatched as a concept by Tony George, uh, son of the owner, or basically the, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway owning family. I would say that this crushing victory by Penske, though, certainly codified the belief that there needed to be a new way and a different way. And as often happens in the world, there was a drastic reaction to this which manifested not necessarily in 96 when it was the first quote irl 500 but 97 where we did have although they weren't spec they were low cost lower tech lower everything chassis from delara and g-force oldsmobile production based engines nissan as well there was definitely a bit of a snapback a reaction to what happened in 94 in what was ultimately chosen in terms of rules for the upcoming IRL as it took over the 500 and the cars that it started a race that honestly, we are still in the midst of that legacy today. Wouldn't you say Jade? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and uh, it, it, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I the book puts into context the the sort of the rumblings and the beginnings of the split uh and I, a lot of fans said oh well this is what caused it and you are very correct in that it was definitely happening or be designed and and uh begun behind the scenes and and this was sort of uh i don't know if you want to say the final straw but but yes i think it was something that uh it was uh not appreciated by the speedway and it really sort of informed their view of rules moving forward from from then on from uh you know from 95 and 96 uh, onward so uh it didn't cause a split but it definitely did have uh an impact on the the way that the IRL rules and and the way that's developed uh as far as a rules package uh moving forward for the speedway and that's definitely why I continue to point to this in this series as really the one defining thing we can say Roger changed the 500 post from, from an amazing standpoint, right? We, those are the things we remember, I think, more than anything. The huge peaks of, oh, my goodness, did you see when that thing happened? There's also, again, there, there's often a bit of backlash, too, which we continue to feel. Well, final thing here, Jaden, I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts on where you believe this answer falls at least in my conversations with Roger Penske over the years, about 94, I've received his thoughts and feelings of, of pride and appreciation for what was achieved with the overall project, hatching this plan, making it happen, and then it winning as desired. I think I might have also felt and received equal pride in one of the 
underlying or maybe it's the overlying aspect of keeping the darn thing a secret for so long so somewhere between those two uh, i think the winning <laughs> maybe didn't surprise roger so much the fact that they were able to keep this under wraps and shock the living bleep out of folks when it was announced uh just you know uh, right before the 500 in april of 94 where do you think that sense of pride and accomplishment maybe falls either most heavily or, or what was your take on that Oh, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think it's it's a very prideful thing for Roger on on so many levels. And I know uh, in speaking with Mario Illion of Ilmore, uh, it, it it is his greatest achievement, or I think it's the thing he is most proud of. And Mario has designed Formula One World Championship engines, and still designing the Ilmore Chevrolet for Indy these days. I, I believe they're still they're going for their twentieth Indy five hundred win as an Ilmore with Ilmore, and yet this does stand out uh, something which will forever be their their legacy no matter what great heights uh, they all achieve uh, you know and roger has heights in a lot of aspects of business this uh, stands alone as a, a great story a great uh, human story of what one can achieve with the right leadership and uh, the right approach to uh, what looked to be impossible but turned out not to be uh, not to be jade thanks so much for taking time my friend and as I mentioned in the intro, your book, it is a gift. And, and I don't say that about a lot of racing books. There were once upon a time, many motor racing books written on an annual basis. Yours, although it isn't that old, has definitely continued to be a gift for those who are wanting to learn more or just wanting to crack open a brand new topic and learn about it for the first time. Uh, we, we've seen almost nothing like it in IndyCar ever across its hundred plus years of history. I don't know if I'm going to see something like it again in my lifetime. The fact that you, Roger, Ilmore folk, so many people were willing to crack this open and share it and we can go and buy it and read about it. Definitely a big thanks to you and your talents and passion to make the beast happen. So I hope folks, if nothing else are curious and go and pick it up and read it because uh, they'll be doing themselves a favor. Well, Marshall, thank you. This was a great honor. I loved uh, chatting with you about it. And uh, I really, it's very rewarding when people uh, enjoy the book. And uh, it was a great story. I'm lucky enough to be the guy that got to tell it. And that was how Roger Penske changed the Indy 500. You can catch this series in more than 500 episodes at the brand new MarshallPruittPodcast.com site. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets.